What would make you really, really happy? I don't mean in a giddy, passing sense. I mean in the the kind of happiness that enlivens the soul, that lifts the spirit, that kind of happiness that gives you hope for the future. We might think of a marriage proposal or the healthy birth of a child or a grandchild or maybe a sizable inheritance check would make you fairly happy right now. It might be a graduation, a job, a championship victory, a prestigious award or promotion. It might be your parents granting you a privilege or a freedom that you've wanted for a really long time. That'd make you quite happy. It might be a new puppy. Something that really brings happiness to you. As you look back at your personal history, what experiences, what achievements, what gifts have brought you genuine happiness. Now, one of the indicators is that it's most likely, whatever that was, you told someone about it. Maybe in a formal announcement, we are getting married. The joy of your heart overwhelms and you send out this announcement. Or it might be, it's a boy, it's a girl. Letting people know. might be a graduation. I finally made it. Will you celebrate with me? Whatever that might be formally, at least it was informal. On some level, you looked for people to tell them about what you had experienced and the joy that was there, the happiness of your heart. You wanted to declare it to someone. I wonder, as we gather around this table today, would you include among the chief sources of happiness in your life the experience of God's forgiveness? Thankfulness, I think, is readily understood if we really know what Christ has done. We really know that we've been forgiven. But happiness? Does it really affect us that deeply that we're happy in God? Honestly speaking, is being forgiven by God a source of joy and happiness to you? Is it such a source of joy that you gladly tell others about it and that it in fact affects every day of your life? That's exactly where we find King David. This is exactly what we find him doing in Psalm 32. If you'll turn there, the 32nd Psalm. As this Psalm of David opens, we find the king exulting in God's forgiveness as he draws other worshipers into the experience He is, as Psalm 51 and verse 13 would put it, teaching us. He's drawing us into the joy of forgiveness when he says, it is a maskil of David, we don't know what that term means exactly, but it's written by David. This is a song to be sung. And he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We find here blessed forgiveness. It's the word blessed mean. It really almost defies translation and understanding, but it, it means something. It's translated directly as happiness. To be fortunate. The word, though defying definition, speaks of the deep-seated happiness of a soul that is walking in fellowship with God. There is no other source of happiness in Scripture. And this is what the Psalter really is about, a major theme of the Psalter. Remember where it starts, Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man. Blessed is this one whose life is in tune with God. 
It's the opposite of being under the curse of God, being under His displeasure. Blessedness is this happiness of soul that is deep-seated and links up with God. It is the experience of the one who is a friend of God, who is obeying His Word, rejoicing in His presence and under His blessing rather than under His curse. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You notice here we have these three common words for breaking God's law. What are they? You see it in these first two verses. There's transgression, and then there is sin, and then iniquity. They are, as Spurgeon puts it, the three-headed dog at the gates of hell. Here they are. Our sin, our wickedness. These words are used interchangeably here, but they do have distinctive meaning, covering the gamut of breaking God's law. Yet as such a sinner, David expresses his happiness that all of his sins have been, notice again three words, forgiven, covered, and not counted against him. What do we find here in these three words? Forgiven, covered, and God does not count iniquity against Him. We have here these major themes, do you hear it? Of forgiveness, atonement, and justification. I thought Paul invented those ideas. The Apostle Paul, no. He's drawing from these themes that flow throughout Scripture. Forgiveness, atonement, and justification. How God ultimately forgives the sinner, how He atones for sin ultimately and does not impute to the account of a sinner their sin, you know what? The Old Testament never really explains that. It speaks about atonement and justification. It doesn't necessarily spell out exactly how that happens. It's the answer that brings us to this table today. The ultimate answer to that question is remember the Lord's death. Atonement, justification, and forgiveness. But let's take these six words together. And if I could help as we just chart this out. The sinner's guilt in the second column there, the first just giving us the the text. And then the third column, God's grace. So the first word that we find is transgression. And though these words, I think, are used interchangeably, they are a bit distinct in their nuance. We have rebellion, disloyalty, breaking loose from God. See yourself there, sinner. Let's not look at this academically just as what it means, but it means me and my experience. Sin. Let me say the, the response to that is God's forgiveness. He lifts the heavy burden of guilt from the sinner. The Hebrew word used here is actually to carry away, to lift off of the sinner. This rebellion, disloyalty, this breaking loose from God, that charge against us, God lifts it away. There is secondly sin, which is intentionally missing the target of God's will, deviating from God's pleasure for us. That is covered. God makes atonement for sin so that sin is kept off the sinner's record and the sinner is reconciled to God. And then there is iniquity. This speaks of twisted, distorted, perverse waywardness. Towards such a one, a God of grace counts no iniquity. Sin is not charged to or reckoned against the sinner. 
tell you, this is good news, isn't it? This is good news. There certainly is happiness for those who obey the law of God. But here, there is happiness for those who break the law of God. For those who hate other people. For those who cheat and lie and steal and lust and slander and find pleasure in a thousand places where it should never be found. For those who do not love God with all of their heart and do not love their neighbor as they love themselves. For such sinners, forgiveness, atonement, and justification is available. God is that kind of a God. This is good, good news. It is also sober, sobering news. God is not an unrighteous judge who simply opens the gates of the prison and says, all right, everybody out, you're free. No matter what they've done, no matter the crimes that they have accomplished, God just swings open the prison door and says, go ahead and leave. Not at all. God forgives no one arbitrarily. And He forgives no one unjustly. Atonement for sin. This covering of sin requires that the price of sin is paid in full. What is that price? How is such atonement made? As I said, the Old Testament really never gives a complete and full answer to that question. That's why the New Testament starts with a genealogy and points us to Jesus of Nazareth. It is through His death that this atonement, this justification and forgiveness is gained. His forgiveness, the burden of our sin, was placed on the back of Christ. Atonement, Jesus died in the place of the sinner. Justification, we are declared righteous because our sin was put on Christ's account. And His righteousness was put on ours. Listen, Christian, these words should be part of our vocabulary. Forgiveness, justification, atonement. These should be comfortable words in our understanding. Because your whole eternity hinges on their reality. They're not just book terms to get right on a Sunday school paper. They're not just meant for a chart on the wall behind us. They are meant to be part of our DNA as God's people. We know what it means to be declared righteous when we're not. We know what it means to have our sins covered by one who has died in our place. We know what it means to be released from the guilt of sin. These are precious words to us a critical, crucial source of happiness for God's people. Perhaps one of the reasons God's forgiveness does not bring us the joy that it ought is because we have been fooled with the world's definition of blessed. What brings happiness in the eyes of the world? It is success. It is fame. It is riches. It is pleasures. It is ease. It is entertainment. That's what makes the soul happy. We are led to believe. We are duped to believe. But if we grasp this reality that we've been singing about to this place, if we grasp the reality of God's holiness 
And if we understand the horror of our sin and then recognize that that sin has been forgiven by this holy God, that's a happiness this world knows nothing about. That's a joy that goes deeper than we can ultimately even explain. That's what true blessedness is. Don't hear the world's definition. It's coming from people that we'll meet here later in the text who know no joy. Now, I left off a word, verse 2. I said there were three words. There's actually a negative word here at the end of verse 2. And I I leave that off because it closes out verse 2, but it's also preparing us for what is to come. It says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So this is one who is forgiven, whose sins are covered. God does not count iniquity against the blessed person. And, number four actually, in whom is no deceit. Now, schooled as we are in New Testament justification, that can strike us as, wait a minute, did David get lost here? Everything God has done. Now is he saying, but there is a bit of works righteousness. It's only if you're one in whom is, is, there's no deceit. I don't think that's the case at all. What he is doing is preparing us for what is to come. Deceit is a negative way of saying forgiven. One in whom is no deceit is one who is forgiven. We could turn it the other way and say one in whom deceit resides, there is no forgiveness. We'll get into that. David now gets very personal, providing insight into why he is so happy in the wonder of God's forgiveness. What has taken place in David's life? We've looked at blessed forgiveness In verse 3, we look at wretched impenitence. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I kept silent. This is a great line. For a man, a commentator by the name of Golden Gay, he says, keeping quiet is not a mark of Old Testament piety. Old Testament piety makes noise. That's a great statement. And so it is now. Genuine believers are always making noise, aren't they? They are rejoicing in their forgiveness or they are repenting of their sins. If God has genuinely saved you, you are a talking person. You may be quiet as compared to other people. And we might all thank God for that. But you're going to be talking. You're going to be confessing sin. You're going to be rejoicing in God. There's going to be words and songs that come from you. Authentic believers are a singing, praying, confessing, testifying people. God loosens the tongue. When a professing follower of Jesus goes quiet, something is wrong. Something is very wrong. There's deceit that has entered in. We don't know the particular season of sin to which David refers. Perhaps the murder of Uriah and his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. That may be the context here. It doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is David says, I was in the anguish of impenitence. Of unrepentance. If you know the story, the 4th century 
Pastor Augustine. This was his favorite psalm. You look at his life, you know why it's his favorite psalm. It speaks for him as it spoke for David. Prior to his conversion, he was a man of great sexual sin. And he agonized over his incapacity to be faithful to what he knew was God's call as he grew in understanding that call, though not yet a believer. And he prayed as he looked back this prayer. God, give me constancy, but not yet. God, make me sexually pure somewhere down the road from now. That's the silence to which David is referring. He says, my bones wasted away. He was worn out. He felt his body aging as he kept the sin inside. Through my groaning, not moaning, but groaning. That is, regretful complaining. David resisted repentance. His tongue was empty of prayers, but his tongue was moving It was filled with complaining, of groaning about the problems that had come, the ravages of pent-up sin and guilt. Unconfessed sin does not go away. Do we understand this as sinners? Unrepentant sin does not go away. It gets spread around the soul like a cancer. And we've got to continue to keep it quiet. And we will certainly eventually be groaning with the implications. What is more, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. My sin pent up inside was eating me alive, but it was your hand as well that was against me. I ask you this morning, are you secretly walking in unrepentant sin? Are you keeping it quiet, not dealing with it? Are you praying Augustine's prayer, God take it away sometime in the future? If that is the case, know this. Your life is struggling against the restraining hand of God. He's got His hand upon you, and it's not for good. And I'll guarantee you one thing. You are not a happy person. How do I know that? Because I know what it means to keep silent. I know what it means to walk in sin and say, God, I'll deal with it later. And we know what God's Word reveals. Joy and peace are sucked away from the soul as we keep it as a harbor for sin. But we can guarantee one other thing. Where God's restraining hand is against you, that is a mercy. This is not to say that all suffering is a direct result of sin. We should not take that position. This is not the case, but it can be the case. And in David's case, this was the situation. Such discipline then is a mercy because God is saying, I'm not going to allow you to run over the cliff. I'm going to restrain you with my hand. I'm going to make life difficult until you come clean. So wretched was David in his unrepentant state, his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Remember where David grew up in the southern end of Judea, where there is hot 
dry sun. And that sun can suck away the moisture in living things with vicious efficiency. David's unconfessed sin was sucking the vitality from his soul. But then came, thirdly, a vital acknowledgement. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I acknowledge my sin. The Hebrew word indicates that he declared his sin to God. He owned it. And he spoke it. The silence was broken. The dam of impenitence crumbled. And David's confessions poured out over it. No more did I cover my iniquity. Did you catch that word? What did it say in verse 1? Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. I no longer covered my iniquity. Well, which is it? We understand, don't we? When God is covering your sin, you're happy. When you are covering your sin, you're miserable. David says, I was, I'm done. I'm not covering it anymore. I've let it go, and now God is covering it with His mercy. And it reminds us that in fact, either you are covering your own sin or you are rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has covered your sin with His blood. It's one or the other. How do we cover sin? We know all too well. Excuses, secrecy, lying, blame shifting, deceit. All of it is a self-inflicted curse that will never work. Listen to the wisdom of C.H. Spurgeon who said this, He who is pardoned has in every case been taught to deal honestly with himself, his sin, and his God. He who is pardoned, that is one who has genuinely experienced the atoning grace, the forgiveness of Christ, knows how to deal honestly with self, with sin, and with God. When we're hiding, we don't have any of that. The believer, particularly, who is hiding sin is among the most inauthentic of people. With respect to sin, this honesty is called confession. It says to whomever it needs to say it, I have sinned. It says ultimately to God, forgive for I am wrong. At our recent teen roundtable, one of the teens asked if I had some wisdom to share, and it brought back from just from life, and it brought back the memories of things that I would like to reverse in my history. But I remember this struggle of the silence and the depression. What everybody said would bring happiness was the way to joy was the experience of sin never brought joy. And I can say at 48 years of life, I cannot look back to any occasion of sin, any occasion of stifling what was wrong and saying, I gained an advantage from that. 
There is momentary pleasure in sin. We all recognize this. The Bible knows this. God realizes this because sin is really ultimately a stealing of God's pleasures. They just get all twisted and wrong. So there's pleasure in sin for a season, but never as I look back on that history can I say this sin brought joy. It brought lasting happiness. I remember the moments driving home and saying, though I didn't have these words, my soul is being sucked dry. There's death in my bones. Do you know the breakthrough comes when we say to God, I am wrong and I turn to you. As I shared with the teens there, I can also not look back from this day all in the past history and find one thing that I've done genuinely right for God or one time that I've ever sought Him that I was disappointed. There's been some suffering for doing right. There's been some pain that's come by doing the right thing. Never do you look at it and say, it made me unhappy. It stole my joy. Always, it brings happiness when we leave our sin. So I ask you, are you happy today? Do you know the joy of trusting the death of Jesus to pay the price for your sin, to cover it, and to give you His righteous standing? Bring to this table that history, that happiness, that thanksgiving. Rejoice in this good but sober news. All my sins have been forgiven. God is merciful to me. Forgiveness comes with blessed entailments. That is, our happiness entails more than a cancellation of the guilt of our sin. Our happiness is experienced in the ongoing benefit of walking in a forgiven state. There are benefits of this. The first... For the forgiven, God is a source of refuge. Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place, David says of God. For me, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This rush of waters... In the land of Israel, there's a lot of dry riverbeds. They dry up in that heat of summer. But if there is a rainstorm, they can suddenly become torturous places, very dangerous places for anybody walking along in them. And they provide something of a nice place to walk at various places. But if they suddenly fill with water, you can be overwhelmed and the rush of water can take you away. There's some places in the U.S. that are like this, and there's warning signs all over. Without warning, suddenly you may turn around as you're walking by this river, and it's about 10 feet across and 10 feet wider than you're in at the moment, and it'll come barreling down this, this area. This is something that they experienced and, and understood, this rush of waters. But notice what David says, in this rush of waters, they shall not reach me. For God is my hiding place. Imagine yourself there, and here comes the water barreling down at you, but you climb up a little ways and find in this sudden rainstorm security in a cave. There, dry, the water's rushing by, 
You're hidden in this hiding place, this place of security. This is who God is for those who are forgiven. He's a hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Where the trials of life threaten to surround us with destruction, God surrounds us here with shouts of deliverance. The man is encircled in song, writes Spurgeon, surrounded by dancing mercies, all of them proclaiming the triumphs of grace. Where are you when you're running from sin? You're covering your steps. You're keeping silent. The sin is destroying you. But where are you when your sins are forgiven in the midst of any trial? You're walking with God. He is your refuge and your strength. How do you want to orient your life toward God? Holding on to sin such that you must run from God? Such that you must avoid Him? Or confessing it, repenting, and knowing God is my refuge, come what may. For the forgiven, God is a source of refuge. For the forgiven, God is a source of instruction. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David had been talking to God. Now suddenly God seems here to break into the psalm and to talk to David. And here is a grand mercy in which we should rejoice. God never leaves His people without counsel. His word of instruction is life-giving. It is life-changing. It is life-preserving. God promises His people, I will counsel you with My eye upon you. That is, He will never leave us or forsake us, and He will never abandon us to our own ways. We tend to get comfortable with this. We shouldn't. We should recognize the wonder of a God who gives His counsel. Unlike the pagan who had to beg the gods to give them some advantage or some wisdom Our God longs to instruct us and counsel us and bring us along where He wants us to be. He's that kind of a God. He's a teaching God, a counseling God. One who has His eye upon us. Notice the contrast with verse 4. God's hand is against the sinner who is hiding his sin. But God's eye is constantly upon the one who is walking in fellowship. So if you are living in unrepentant sin, God's hand resists you. But if you are living a life of repentance, His watchful, loving eye is upon you for good. I didn't say if you're a perfect person. Or if you are freed from sin where you never sin. But if you live a life of repentance where you're not running from God, where you're confessing what is wrong, and you're seeking to maintain right relationship with Him, then His eye will never leave you. He will guide and direct and watch over your every move. What comfort is there? Verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Horses and mules do not naturally heed words of counsel and instruction. That's why we have a bit and a bridle. In high school one day, I was on a very anxious horse and... The bit was slipped, lost, and uh, I was at the mercy of the horse, which took off running, and um, I'm just glad I'm here today, because I couldn't stop that thing. It would not listen to counsel. 
which sounded, I'm sure, in the ears of that horse, a lot more like pleading for mercy. Please stop. Don't be like that. Don't be like a dumb horse. God has to come and put a bit in your mouth and a bridle on you to control you and to keep you from because you'll never come to Him unless things are really, really bad. Don't be that way, says the psalmist. Listen, you have a God who loves you, who wants to counsel you and point you in good ways. For the forgiven God is also then a source of steadfast love, a source of refuge, a source of instruction, a source of steadfast love. Verse 9 Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Notice here that trust in God is the counter response to sinning against God. All sin is a lack of faith in God and in His Word. We're listening to the flesh, we're listening to the world, we're listening to Satan as to what produces blessedness. But when we trust the Word of God, when we heed what He has said, we, we don't walk in sin, but we walk in His steadfast love. His undying, loyal love surrounds us. These are wonderful benefits of forgiveness. For the forgiven, then God is also the source of rejoicing. Verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is not a free-floating command just stuck at the end of this psalm for some reason. Singing is the only honest response to the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven. That we have been reconciled to God. It has been heard more than once from pastors who have said things like, I just wish we didn't have to sing. I wish we could get to the, to the point of the gathering. The message. Some people have called the singing of the church the preliminaries. Things we've got to get away. And I, and I really think in the minds of some people, they think it's a concession to the musical. Well, why don't we have a concession then to the theatrical? A concession to the athletic? A concession to those who like board games? We're not conceding to the musical. The only thing a soul can do that has been genuinely forgiven is sing. It lifts itself up in joy. Maybe that joy is lacking, and that's why we see it as preliminaries. No, this isn't stuck on here at the end. The gladness in the Lord leads to rejoicing in the lives of the forgiven. So we should sing on the Lord's Day because we are happy. Sing on the Lord's Day because there is joy that God has produced through His forgiveness. We should give ringing proclamation as we gather as forgiven sinners, singing to express that we are indeed, do you see the phrase here, glad in the Lord. And that ultimately is the point of forgiven sin. Not just stopping there at forgiveness, but realizing that this forgiveness comes from a merciful God so that we find our joy and our gladness in Him. Are you glad today? Are you glad in the Lord? I think of Augustine, his favorite psalm, of finding himself under the press of sin, the agonizing experience of impenitence, and literally clawing at his flesh, pulling on his hair, rocking back and forth in agony because he did not want to give up what he knew he could not give up. 
his sin. But then in the mercy of God, this godless man let go. He acknowledged his sin. He turned and gave it to God, repenting, and for the rest of his life knew and expressed and celebrated God as his source of refuge, as his source of instruction, as his source of steadfast love, as the source of rejoicing, attending the church in Milan. He couldn't find any joy in it. He was curious. He enjoyed hearing these sermons and hearing the logic to them and the historical accounts of believers who had overcome sin. But the singing, that didn't work for him until he let go of his sin. Then he spoke of the sweet-tuned church whose songs lifted and distilled in his soul and the phrase, I was happy in all of this. Now, happy. Now that the sins have been forgiven, we can sing with gladness and we can rejoice in what God has done. Now something stirs deep within. Do you know that stirring? I pray for it. I plead God for it as we gather on the Lord's Day. There's days it's not very evident in my soul. There's days it is. But do we come looking for that stirring of joy and gladness in God? Are we praying for it? Are we seeking it? Or might you say, you know, I've never really felt it. I really don't have a problem talking about the singing as the preliminaries. It just doesn't do anything for me. Why? Is there a happiness in your soul to know that your sins are forgiven? If that's missing, maybe they're not. That's not because God is dangling forgiveness like a carrot in front of a mule. It's because you've got to turn from your sin. You've got to want the joy of God more than the pleasures of sin. As you turn and repent, that gladness will come. It's never going to be found by trying to play both sides. Getting the pleasures from the world and trying to steal some pleasures from God. It's not how it works. Because all of the genuine pleasures in this universe flow from the being of God. Everything that you're enjoying of pleasure in this twisted world is just that, twisted. It's not real. It's not full. It will never, ever satisfy Come to the God of pleasure and joy and find your gladness in Him and you can rejoice as the pure in heart.